If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Psalm 67. We'll be in Psalm 67 this morning. To the choir master with string instruments, a song, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we bow our heads and our hearts, and we do what we often find ourselves doing in our lives We ask for help. We ask for wisdom. We ask for clarity of thought. We ask for the grace of your spirit to make us not only hearers of your word and understanders of your word, but doers of your word as well. And so, Father, would you be pleased by your spirit to open up our eyes and our hearts that we might behold the wonderful things about your son, from your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I've entitled our time this morning, uh, When More is Better. There's a phrase, less is better, and we've heard this in recent years, and it's a movement that calls us to get rid of uh, excesses in our lives. Maybe you have clothing in your closet that you don't wear or you can't fit, and so we go through a season of purging Or maybe you have debt that you haven't been attacking and it's snowballing and you kind of get into get out of debt mode and so less is better. So you try to free yourself from those debts or maybe your children just have too many uh, toys in the toy box and they find themselves on the floor and in the kitchen. And so you're saying, man, less has to be better here. We need you to get make a pile of what we're going to donate or maybe you've. Uh, Like me, you've purchased books that you thought you wanted to read, and they just kind of sit there on your bookshelf, and you go through a season like, man, I could make a lot of money if I just sold these on Amazon, right? Or maybe it's in your phone, and apps have cluttered your screen, and it's hard to get to the things that matter, and so you go through a purging where you start deleting apps that you've just not used in a long time that are taking space, or, or maybe you're downsizing. Maybe your children are, are gone, and you still have this house that you bought when you raised them, and now bedrooms are empty, and it costs more to leave the lights on, and you go through a phase of, man, maybe less is better. Maybe we need to uh, get rid of things. Sometimes less is better when we're getting rid of those things that uh, entangle and encumber our lives. But there are other times, right, where more is preferred. Who hasn't prayed for more patience to deal with people? Or more hope when life is hard? 
or more humility when pride is uh, in your heart or more self-control or more joy in the Lord or more strength to fight our sin or more compassion for the needy or more wisdom in complex situations or more money when kids go to college or get married, right? There are also appropriate seasons when more is better. We're in a passage where more is better. More what, you might be asking. More people who come to know, love, and worship our Lord. More voices joining in the chorus of worshipers around the throne of Jesus. More hearts moved and captivated by the beauty of our Lord. In the book of Revelation, John sees a vision at the end of time, and it's more people than he could have imagined. He said, they're too numerous. I I can't count them. They're people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every language, and I can't count them if I sat there all eternity, right? And they're worshiping Jesus. In my mind, this passage helps us, encourages us, it challenges us, and it calls us to desire more. More of God's goodness enjoyed by others. I want to look at it under four headings. And the first heading is a really simple proposition that I want to put before you. And it's this. The Lord desires more people. And you see it in the text. And I think it's really easy to miss until we sort of slow down. Uh, And you see it in this movement or this shift from verses 1 through the rest of the psalm. And so notice how it starts. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now, if you've been at Redeemer for a while, then these words should sound familiar. They should sound familiar because they're taken right from Numbers chapter 6. At the end of every service, whether I'm preaching or Brian or Zach or anyone, what we'll usually do is pronounce a benediction upon you. And I'm really careful to read it from the Bible so that you know that this is not my blessing to you. This is God's blessing to you in Christ so much so that, that in Numbers chapter 6, listen to the words of it. And I want to read it because it sounds almost identical to the words in Psalm 67. It says, the Lord told Moses to tell Aaron and the priests that they must bless the people of Israel. And you shall say this to them. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you and the Lord make his face to shine upon you and the Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Now, notice how centered around Israel that blessing was. That blessing was from God to Moses to the priests to the people of Israel. This is your blessing. And so when you read Psalm 67, it reads as if the psalmist, whoever wrote Psalm 67, has Numbers chapter 6 on his heart, and he's actually saying, the Lord, 
the Lord, our covenant God, be kind to us. Bless us. We are your covenant people. So this psalm is composed by a Jew. But notice the shift in the psalm. Did you catch it in verse 2? And, it, it, and it, look, it's going to sound really redundant, what I'm about to do. That's because the psalm is redundant. And I think it's supposed to get in our hearts because I don't think we typically see what the psalmist wants us to see. And so whenever you see emphasis in poetry or redundancy in poetry, it is for emphasis. And listen to the shift it moves from the psalmist asking God to bless us and bless us and be gracious to us. And look at verse 2. That your way may be known on the earth and not just in our part of the world. Your saving power among all the nations and not just our nation. Let the peoples, plural, and when he uses peoples in the psalm, he's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about non-ethnic Jews. He's talking about the uncircumcised. He says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations, not just our nation, be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity, and you guide the nations upon the earth, not just us. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. He shall bless us, but let the ends of the earth fear him. You see the flow of the song? It's, Lord, be good to us and gracious to us and bless us, but your blessing does not stop with us. God desires to bless the nations, the ends of the earth. In my mind, if you draw in your Bibles or write in them, you could take a color pencil and on Psalm 67, you could write the words, more. God is after more. He's after more worship. More glory. More pockets in our world and our city where Jesus is known and enjoyed. If you were to ask me what passages in the Old Testament make it crystal clear that Christianity is not the white man's religion, it's not a religion that is bound for a certain ethnic group confined to a certain geographical location that is only popping during a certain time in history, but it is God's desire to show his blessing and favor to Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, American and Palestinian and African and North Korean and South Korean and those who live in Antarctica and on Australia, this is one of the passages where God says, spin the globe and I want glory everywhere. More. He's after more worshipers. More knowledge of Jesus spread across the face of the earth. 
more people who see and taste and know that he is good. He's after more. And if he is after more, why is it so hard to settle for less? Why is it easy to go through a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade without opening our mouths? about the goodness of Jesus. And I'm just not talking to you. I'm talking to me. You see, I stand up here in a suit with air conditioning blowing behind me, and it's easy to say true and hard things to you who are following Jesus. But pastor, when the last time you chopped it up with a non-believer? When the last time you talked to them about the hope you have and not so that they can come to your church, but because you deeply care about their souls and their eternities. Why are we silent? And what this psalm says, he wants more. More glory. More worshipers seeking him, worshiping him in spirit and, and truth. Now, the next question that I think is important is this. What's an, an important means for the more? If God is after more worshipers, the nations, the ends of the earth, to come to a saving knowledge of his work for us in Jesus, what is an important means? And I'm saying an important means. It's not the only means, but it's important. Did you notice the flow from verses 1 to verse 2? Notice how it reads. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And look at how it flows right into verse 2. So that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. You catch that? Why bless Israel? So that through blessing Israel, God might then bless the nations. And so this is a, a purpose clause. What is the purpose or one of the purposes for God to be gracious and kind and good to Israel? It is so his goodness would move from them through the ends of the earth. And so you can say it like this, that Israel, in my mind, there are two things. They're an illustration of God's saving power, and they're an instrument of God's saving power. Now, what do I mean by an illustration? They're a picture. If you want to see who God is, his character, his heart, his covenant faithfulness, his grace, Israel was put on a pedestal as a small little podunk nation that was not famous, that was not numerous, and God says, I love you because I love you. Now, how do we know that we're supposed to view them as an example? Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's talking to the Corinthians, but he says, we do not want you to be unaware. Our fathers were under a cloud. They passed through the sea. They were baptized by Moses in the cloud and the sea. They ate spiritual food. They drank spiritual drink. They drank from Christ. 
yet most of them God was not pleased with, so they died in the wilderness. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He says it again in verse 11, let us not put Christ to the test like they did, but these things happened to them as an example for us. And so what Paul is saying is Israel is an example of both who God is and also what not to do and what not to become, but you can't get around the fact that they are a picture to the watching world of what this God is like. And you know what? Paul uses the same word for himself in 1 Timothy. He talks about himself being an opponent of the, of, of the gospel, an insolent opponent, a blasphemer. And he says, God has shown me his mercy and kindness in Christ as an example for all who would believe. And so what Paul is saying is, look at me. I was a murderer. I hated Christians. I stood against the gospel. And look at what God did. He rescued me and changed me. And guess what? That's an example. You are never beyond the grace of God. This is how he deals. Now, notice they're in a picture, but they're not just an illustration. They're an instrument. You remember what God told Abraham in Genesis 12, and he was named Abram then? Listen to these words and listen carefully. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Doesn't that read a lot like this passage? Why would God bless Abram so that Abram would then be a father of faith to the Gentiles? Abraham was not blessed to be a blessing to himself. The blessing was to come to him and go through him. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying in our passage. May you be gracious to us, bless us, make his face to shine upon us so that through blessing us, your way might be known, your saving power among the nations. God's plan was for his saving grace to come to them and flow through them. His plan was for them to be different and peculiar and set apart in how they dressed and what they ate, how they treated their wives, how their children related to their parents, how they spent their time on the Sabbath, when the world around them is chasing the mighty dollar, Israel worships and rests and trusts that their God will sustain them. It was expressed in the way they treated the poor. In Israel, you could not beat your fields multiple times. You had one shot. And whatever didn't fall, you left it. So when the poor and the sojourner and the widow came through, they had provision. And that was countercultural and a world of greed. Their ethics around sex was countercultural and a world of polygamy. The way they honored the old in their community was countercultural to the way the rest of the world treated, treated senior citizens. That Israel was supposed to be 
this community indwelled by God's presence who lived differently so that when the nation saw them, they were struck with curiosity. Oh my, what is this? And, and why? And how, how can you live like this? And it was meant to be a pointer to the God had rescued them. God's longing for more worshipers, point one, it shapes our commitment to be missional means in point two. You could say our commitment to missions that they flow out of God's desire for more worship. And John Piper wedged these two things together. Missions, our activity, is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship isn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of redeemed people fall on their faces before the thrones, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but the worship and enjoyment of God will endure forever. Do you hear what he's saying? Because God desires more worshipers, we are now saved and sent missional people. And there is coming a day when the full number of the more come in and we will not be on mission again because the number of God's people will be there and the choir in heaven will be complete and everyone will be singing and make a melody to the Lord. And until then, because he desires more worship, we live as sent missional people. Do you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I'm an instrument and I'm an illustration of God's saving mercies? Harriet Tubman. In 1849, the man who owned her died, and he was deeply in debt, and fear went, out through, went throughout the entire plantation because slaves knew that they would be gone to the highest bidder. Families would once again be torn apart, and Harriet Tubman was tired. So she struck out alone, taking her liberty. She tapped into an underground railroad that was already functioning well on the eastern shore. She traveled by night using the North Star, and she received instructions from white and black helpers as she found her way to Philadelphia. She became an illustration of freedom. But she was not content with just being an illustration of freedom. She wanted more. She began to work as a domestic to save her money to help the rest of her family escape. In December of 1850, she executed her first mission, the rescue of her niece Kasiah and her niece's two children, James and her infant Araminita. 
Within a few months, she returned and helped her youngest brother, Moses, find his way to freedom as well. By 1854, through her relationships with white and black abolitionists and the Underground Railroad agents, William Steele of Philadelphia, Thomas Garrett of Wilmington, Delaware, Stephen Myers in Albany, and Frederick Douglass in Rochester, New York, Tubman successfully ferried 75 more individuals, including her brother, mother, parents, family, and friends, to freedom. She is an illustration of freedom, but did you notice she went back and was an instrument? And if a woman would risk her life to free slaves from evil masters, how much more important is it when people are enslaved to sin and the bondage of hell forever apart from a righteous and holy God? How can we not desire their freedom to know their maker and to enjoy him and to have their sins pardoned, to have new hearts of flesh to live into who God calls them to be in Jesus. This is us. We're illustrations of saving grace. And we're called to be instruments of saving grace. Now here's a, le a legitimate question. I get that you want more worshipers, Father. And you're worthy. I get that we're means, we're one of the appointed means to carry the good news. But here's the question that I think is worth asking How? What's the message that we need to carry to the more? And how will God work it so that we can have relationships and opportunities with the more. Because that, that's an important question. Israel is right here in the Middle East, and you got the nations at the far extent of the earth, and there was no such thing as an airplane. So how in the world does the good news move? How will God do this? Have you noticed from the call of Abram. He says, I will bless you. You will be a blessing. Through you, the nations will be blessed. Genesis 12. You know where Abram ends up at the end of Genesis 12? You know where he is? He's in Egypt because of a famine. Now think about that. God just told him the ends of the earth will be a blessing through you, and somehow a famine comes, and now Abraham is standing next to the most powerful man in the world at the time. Fast forward again. When Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt, and then there's a famine that comes, and all the nations of the earth go to Egypt to get food, and guess who is second in control in the most powerful country in the world? Joseph. And guess who grew up in the house of the nations? Moses. And guess who goes out and comes back in and brings Israel out 
into the land of promise. Though he doesn't go in, he gets them out, and he's interacting with the nations. And then Joshua comes in, and they're fighting the nations. And Rahab, the prostitute, is from the nations, happens to come in and become a Jew, and she lives with them until she dies. And then when David becomes king, he's warring against the nations. And when Solomon becomes king, the queen of Sheba comes to him to hear of his wisdom. And when he starts to build the temple, guess where he gets his supplies from? Israel don't harvest everything they need for the temple. They're trading and getting stuff and encountering the nations. And even when they sin and are kicked out of the land, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel ascend, and somehow they win Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And then they're sent back into the land to rebuild the city, and Nehemiah is friends with Artaxerxes, right? Esther is friends with King Ahasuerus, right? When they rebuild the wall for the city, they do trade with other nations so that they can have what they need to thrive. In other words, you will never find a point in redemptive history when God's people have been isolated to themselves. They're holy in the midst of hard situations. And whether it's famine, persecution, deportation, or rebuilding the city, Israel always related to the nations. It's as if God was saying, your way or my way. We can do this like Babel, where you try to come together and be your own, and I'm going to scatter you. And when I scatter you, if you think you're just going to be to yourself and cut off from unbelievers, you're wrong again. We're going to get this thing right where I'm going to put you in relationship with people who don't know me. And so the question is, what would they say? Look, y'all, something's going on between Psalm 65, 66, and 67. It's been wrecking my brain for the past two weeks. Here's what I think is going on. If you want to talk to me about it, I'm happy to entertain your ideas as well. Here's what we know about the Psalms. Written across decades, composed by numerous authors, some known, some unknown, recounting different times in Israel's history. And here's what we know about these three Psalms. They're not, and so someone put them in an order. And the hard part is like approaching them and figuring out, is there something there? And here's what I think. I think something's here. And it's, and it's not a connection around authorship because David wrote 65, 66, and 67. We don't know. It's not, it's not all, it's, neither is it around time and history. David lived a completely different time frame than some of the events that come out in Psalm 66. There are four overarching themes in these three Psalms, and I'm going to show them to you quickly. This idea of peoples on the earth. I've shown you this in Psalm 67, but look at Psalm 66. 
the opening verse. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. All the earth worships you. Bless our God, O peoples. Come and hear all who, who fear God. Look at Psalm 65, verse 5. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farther seas, those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in all of your signs. In other words, all three of these psalms have a broad scope, a broad view of God's activity. The second thing they have in common is this sense of praise. Praise shows up a bunch of times in 67. Look at Psalm 66. Shout for joy, all the earth. Sing, give him glorious praise. Say to him, how awesome is your deed. Psalm 65, praise is due you, O God. And so God's reach is not just to the ends of the earth, but his reach to the ends of the earth deserves praise from the ends of the earth. And then it flows right into these last two Ps, and it's God's provision and protection through the earth. Psalm 65, he's provided for people through caring for the earth. He's quieted storms, settled the chaos of waters. Same thing in verse 60, uh, Psalm 66, when Israel walked right through the sea, protection. And in verse 12, they, they reached provision in the wilderness and, and in the land of promise. In Psalm 67, look at verse 6, the ends of the earth has yielded its increase. In my mind, there's a relationship. And here is what I think is going on. Psalm 65, it says, look at verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house. So Psalm 65 makes this statement that blessed is the one whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whom God chooses to bring near. And you know what Psalm 67 answers? It tells us who. Who does God choose to bring near? Whose sin will God cover? And you make the mistake to think it's just David and it's just Israel. Psalm 67 tells us that God desires to bring Jews and Gentiles into his temple. He desires to pardon the iniquity of Jews and Gentiles. And you know what's lodged right in the middle? It reads as if the author of Psalm 66 anticipates the day when the Gentiles come in and he's trying to break it down, the questions that they have. One of the privileges we had, and I say we because we labored at Jackson State together for nine years, my wife and I, and our family. And one of the things that we learned and, and got the privilege to do was, y'all ever brought somebody to church who never been to church? You ever brought somebody into a Reformed church who've never been to a Reformed church? You ever brought somebody into a Presbyterian church who've never been in a Presbyterian church? You ever brought somebody to a church like ours who've never experienced something like this? We had to debrief and prep. I'm serious. Like, I'll never forget Big E, Ernest Igesvabi, big dude, right, played football at Jackson State. 
We were saying, he was like, Pastor L, he, he nudged me. Who is Gloria Patrie? <laughs> right? Like, that was a question, right? He's like, Pastor, who is Gloria? I mean, we, we seen the Gloria Patrie, right? And he's like, who is this lady? I mean, that was a real question. Like, Pastor L, why ain't nobody standing up when Pastor Mike bringing that fire? Right? Why are they scared to say amen? Right? Like, I mean, like, really, if you've ever brought someone who was not from here into here, I'm telling you, they got tons of questions. And so we started to prep them. All right, we're going to do a confession of sin. Well, I got to confess my sin, right? Who I'm confessing it to, right? You have to prep them because they don't know. You have to be a bridge to bring those who don't know you into what it means to know and worship the one true God. Look at Psalm 66 through that lens. Notice how it begins. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing glory to his name. Give him glorious praise. In other words, when you come into our assembly, this is not the place to make much of a man. This is a place to make much of our God, and we're going to worship our God. Say, well, what do I say? This is what you say. You say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come. Well, tell us the deeds. Look at verse 5. Come and see. Let us tell you what God has done. And then he, he, he unpacks the Exodus event, that the Lord, our God, turned the sea into dry land, and we walked through it. And then verse 10, and he tested us, he tried us, he brought us into his net, he laid a crushing net on our back, life was hard, it sucked being in Egypt as slaves, but he delivered us, he brought us out through fire and water. Look at verse 8, bless our God, O peoples, not your false gods, but our God. Look at verse 9, he has saved our bodies and our souls. In other words, you're getting the message that the nations needed to here to form a biblical theology about the one true God. He deserves your worship. Now look at these psalms through that lens. You know what the message that Israel was supposed to tell the nations? That food you eating, you eating that food because he made the water come down. Bless his name. That protection you've been enjoying, you enjoying that protection because he's been protecting you. Bless his name. And I know life has been hard. Look, it was hard for us. We were in bondage for 400 years, says the psalmist, but the Lord brought us out. So I know you have a God who can relate to your sufferings. He is faithful and kind. And like the two ladies just saying to us this morning, he's been there in the valleys and he's there on the mountaintops an ever-present help. And you didn't have eyes to see, to see him. And he brings you out. And he's given you someone greater than Moses. Moses parted the sea and walked through the water. We know the one who walked on water and told the sea to stop roaring. Moses fed us in the wilderness with manna. Jesus fed 5,000, then 4,000. Moses gives us the law. Jesus explains it and lives it and then goes and dies in your place because you can't keep it. Moses was cut off and could not enter the land of promise. And Jesus was cut off on a cross 
that we might go in. That's the message. That message right there to a world trying to make sense of God's faithfulness is powerful. And you know what, saints? You're probably connected to 37 people who don't know Jesus. Personally. Co-workers. Neighbors. And it might be more. Family. The one who cooks your food at the restaurant. Your server who brings you your food. Your garbage man. Your postman. As much as we think we live in bubbles, and as much as some might want to, you aren't in a bubble. In a ways a lot like Israel, God has put non-believers around you. The last thing I want us to think about this morning are some motivations towards speaking this message If you're like me, this feels daunting. And here's the good news of the passage. And it's in verse 2. That your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. We lack the power to convert anyone. But God doesn't. We are one part of the plan, but we are not the power behind the plan. The Holy Spirit is. God is at work before we show up to say or do anything. Jesus tells his disciples, I sent you out to labor for those things that you did not sow, to reap for those things that you did not plant. Others have gone before you. My father has been working before the foundations of the earth. He has chosen for himself a people for his own possession. And so we don't labor with all the pressure on us to say everything right and to get everything right. We labor with the power of God moving before us and behind us and beneath us. And your sin should not be a barrier. Jesus has atoned for all the ways in which we blow it. It's like playing Mario Brothers with unlimited amount of continues. You get out and you get a restart. And you get out and you get another restart. And you get out and you get another restart. That you have until eternity because of the grace of God to learn how to and to grow into opening your mouth and cultivating the skill of being a faithful witness. Well, what if I don't know what to say? God didn't need Moses' mouth to go confront Pharaoh, and I don't think Paul was an eloquent speaker. He can use our fumbling attempts to get glory for his name if we would open our mouths In The Lion King, and I cannot wait for this to come out. There's a scene from the old one, and I'm waiting to see if they're going to put it in the new one. And there's a scene when Simba is running from the three hyenas. Y'all seen that scene? He's been in the land where his daddy told him not to go. And he ends up being there, him and Nala. And they're in a cave, 
and the three hyenas are about to eat him. And Simba does this. He says, Rah! right? <laughs> and it's like this little roar. And the three hyenas, they just start to laugh and, oh, how cute, little cutie. Do it again, do it again, do it again, right? And he lets out another roar. And they're laughing like, oh, how cute, little kitty. Do it again, do it again, do it again. And then he says, roar. And Nala looks at him and he's like, what? What did I just do? And they're like dumbfounded. And you know what? It wasn't his roar. That was his daddy's roar. That was the ferociousness of his father's roar that worked. Will you think about evangelism in that way? It might feel like, rawr! <laughs> right? But I tell you this, behind it is your daddy's roar either for salvation or for the hardening of hearts that men would be rightly condemned for rejecting the good news. Go out, open your mouths and your hearts with the roar and blessing of your Father. He's faithful to work through you. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you. We love you. We praise you for your word. Father, I pray that you would call us to repentance if it's needed in areas of sharing our faith and thinking about the lost. Father, I pray that you would remind us that you have not given us a spirit of fear. Father, help us, Lord, to be praying for those in our lives who need the truth of the gospel. And might we have the good news of Jesus Christ ready to share, laced with how we've seen your faithfulness through common grace and saving grace. Would you do this for your glory and your honor? Amen.